Wouldn't it be great if there were a pocket-sized guide that could help you sleep, focus, act, or be better? Well, there is. And if you have 10 minutes, Headspace can change your life. I know because it's definitely helped me too. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Headspace is the only meditation app advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace can really help you feel better. If you're overwhelmed, Headspace has three-minute SOS meditations for you. Need some help falling asleep? They can help you with wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has stuff that you could do with your kids too. And their approach to mindfulness can help you reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Like I said, I use Headspace as well. I used to use it back in the day, then I got off of it for a while to use another tool. But then, honestly, I came back to it, and it's even better. The voicing, the meditation, it definitely, even just with five minutes a day, it really changes everything for me. It's backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Incredible. So you deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. So go to headspace.com slash SPI. That's headspace.com slash SPI for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash SPI today. With the rise of podcasting and how prolific video has just seemed to be in the last five to eight years, where does blogging, where does writing, where does tapping away on the keyboard fall into this. That, that's what that noise was, by the way, tapping on my keyboard. Because blogging and, and, and that, that, that's how I got started back in 2008. After I got let go, I started a blog to help people pass an exam. After I learned how to do that, I started a blog, the Smart Passive Income blog, to teach people how I did that. And now I'm actually blogging less, and I'm podcasting more, and I'm shooting video more for YouTube. Is blogging still a thing? Is writing still possible to build an audience with your words? Well, yes, but we are needing to do it in perhaps a different kind of way these days. And so this means platform, perhaps. This means the words that you choose to write, how you write them, how your ideas are presented to others. That's all much more important today now more than ever. And today to help us through this conversation and to help us understand more about how and where writing fits into all this, in addition to learning about a very popular blogging platform called Medium right now, Medium being a place for you to go and write and have those writings distributed elsewhere, not a essentially a blogging platform that you own, but a place for you to write, we have today none other than Dr. Ben Hardy, who I'm very excited to welcome on the show. It was actually through a connection from a previous guest who introduced me to Ben and just how prolific and how successful he's been writing on Medium about psychology and personalities and, and, and that sort of thing. And I wanted to bring him on the show to talk about Medium because I've had a lot of people ask me about Medium. Hey, Pat, should I be blogging on Medium to drive more traffic to my website? Should I try to build an audience on Medium because there's a lot of people looking for articles and browsing through there nowadays? What should I do? Well, we're gonna ask Ben those questions. We're also gonna get some copywriting tips and how to make sure that whatever it is that you write and wherever it is that you write it, it stands out, it gets noticed, it can potentially be shared and go viral too. So stick around, we got a great show today. Cue the music. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, he thinks the SwitchPod business is going to be bigger than anything he's done before, Pat Flynn. 
What's up, everybody? Paflin here, and welcome to session 431 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. My name is Pat Flynn, here to help you make more money, save more time, and help more people, too. Uh, really excited for Ben Hardy to come on to tell us more about writing, medium, copywriting tips, what the titles should be like, how the first paragraph ties into everything, just all the things related to writing, because this is Ben's superpower. It's what helped build his platform and his business, and I'm excited to share his story with you, too. He's also a father and a family man, and he has a lot of kids in the house, and so I ask him questions about how he's able to manage all that, too. So stick around. This is gonna be a great one. Here he is, Ben Hardy. Hey, Ben, thanks for coming on the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Thanks so much for being here today. Absolutely, Pat. Big fan. Excited to be here. Well, I'm stoked too, and I have to give a big public shout out to Richie Norton, who's been on the show before. A lot of you might remember Richie. He came on to talk about uh, his book and, and the power of starting something stupid, as well as he is the co-founder of Product, uh, a team that helped me and Caleb create and invent the SwitchPod. So big shout out to Richie for connecting us today. And so I see that you are known as an organizational psychologist. Can you explain a little bit about what that means and kind of how does this tie into your story a little bit? Yeah, I mean, organizational psychology is a very different form of psychology from, let's just say, clinical or counseling. Mm -hmm. Organizational is very much business psychology. So like studying leadership, teams, training, motivation, productivity. I mean, it's very like, you know, just like the business side of psychology and how to be effective and how, how leaders can be effective. And, you know, I'm not I'm not a traditional organizational psychologist at this point. I got the degree and I enjoyed it and it influences my thinking, but I'm I'm kind of more a uh, writer and entrepreneur of sorts, but it definitely influences what I write about and what I think about. How does it influence? Like what, what of organizational psychology? I mean, I think like a psychologist, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so how, how do you feel that's helped you in uh, growing this amazing brand and, and having this giant email list and all these amazing followers on all kinds of places, including Medium, which is what we're going to get into in just a minute here. But, you know, for those of us who aren't psychologists, you having that superpower, how can you help us understand what is it about being a psychologist that's helped you sort of gain so much momentum? Uh, I mean, I think that people can have momentum, obviously, without being a psychologist. I think it's, it's, you know, whether you're trying to build passive income, whether you're trying to build an audience, whether you're trying to be a good parent, I think that, you know, I think psychology is just universally interesting. And so for me, it's just a good way from, you know, every psychologist, by the way, views the world differently, you know, and so like, you're a psychologist, you just don't have a degree, you know, and so I just, um, I think that one thing that's true about psychologists, yes, they use data to influence their thinking, but also they're, they're, thinking influences the data that they choose, which, uh, and so like I have my own biases and my own perspectives and, and the reasons why I look at people and things the way they do. But so like when I started writing on Medium and just other places, I was able to use my background in psychology to further explain things or give credibility to my own thinking. Mm -hmm. And I think that it, it allowed me to speak, you know, one of the things that honestly I think helped my blogs for so long go viral was that I would write things in a very emotional tone, emotional tone, which is obviously good for connecting with the reader, but I was able to like layer in research, which then didn't make it feel like it was just my opinion, even though a lot of the times it was. <laughs> right, right, right. It, it definitely adds a little bit more credibility, which is awesome. And you do a lot of writing. Your your main sort of medium is writing. And speaking of medium, I'd love to talk about that because you are known as, as somebody who's built this amazing following on the platform. And it's something that we've talked about a little bit. A lot of people ask me, Pat, where should I start writing? Should I start writing on medium or should I start my own blog? Or, you know, what what should I do? And, you know, how would you for somebody who doesn't even know what Medium is, how would you explain what Medium is and, and, and how powerful of a platform it can be for somebody trying to grow a brand and a following? Yeah, so Medium was created by 
Ev Williams and others. Ev Williams is the guy who created Twitter. So, I mean, it's very, I mean, it, it's, it's made by people who really understand platforms. It's a certain type of platform. You know, it's, it's a blogging platform. It's a communication platform. A lot of people go on there to, you know, and there's already an embedded audience. You know, there's, it's, it has over a hundred million viewers a month. And so it's one of the top 300 websites on the, in the world. And there's all sorts of different genres. I mean, if like Obama sometimes puts messages on, it's, it's interesting because sometimes people put very controversial or very like timely pieces on that platform. And it has a big shot of going viral just because of the nature of the platform and how, how things can spread. I started writing on Medium in 2015. That's actually when I started blogging and writing in general. And that was during the first year of my PhD program. And, you know, I didn't really know that much about it, to be honest with you. I just heard about it from a friend. And, you know, I, I would put blog posts on my own website and I'd also copy paste them into Medium. And, you know, it probably took about 15 or 20 articles before one of them really took off and actually got like several million views, um, which was interesting. And so, you know, I ended up writing on Medium very aggressively from 2015 to 2018 still put stuff on there last year and even have started posting stuff on there now. I will say it's a great place for people to write if they're wanting to get eyeballs. There is a problem with it. And that's kind of the problem with any big platform is that the more and more the people that get on there, the harder and harder it is to get discovered. So it is very saturated at this point, And it's very different from what it was even two or three years ago. Um, so it's not something that I, it really depends on the person's goals. I think that it's a great, pl- it, it's very different from like, say a LinkedIn, where it's LinkedIn is so focused on business. I actually think that LinkedIn for people for most people actually in like the business realm or like, you know, stuff like you do, I think LinkedIn's actually much better now than Medium is. But Medium still has its place. You know, Medium has great audiences in the entrepreneurial world, finance, like self-improvement, um, politics. I mean, there's so many people that read Medium that it's possible that your stuff can get viewed. The reason I don't really use it anymore, or at least it's not necessarily something I care too, too much about anymore. For a long time, what I would do is I would write an article and at the bottom of my article, I'd have a call to action, very simple call to action. We ended up getting very good at polishing them over time and driving people to a landing page. And ultimately, for probably over two years, I was getting over 20,000 emails a month without any paid ads, just was just, you know, I, I mean, I was getting 20 to 30,000 emails just from about a million, a million views a month on Medium. And it just lasted for like two or three years. And so, I mean, I had one landing page that got over 800,000 opt-ins, <laughs> um, but it was all just medium. And it was just, it was just a beautiful audience and there's a great audience there. Why it's changed is they don't allow any of that anymore. They don't allow any internal marketing. They don't allow you to do calls to action. And if you don't have those, the chances of people going from your article to your website or to your landing page are so small. And so it's, it's what they do now is they pay writers per clicks. So like, you know, if you write for their platform, you can get money per click. And so for a lot of writers, that's exciting because they can, they can get page views, which is great. And sometimes there's a lot of big audiences that will syndicate work. So like when I was publishing there a lot, you know, I'd often get like Business Insider or like Forbes or Fortune. I'd have people from all over the place asking, can we syndicate your work? Like I've had like dozens of articles on CNBC and stuff because Medium, when when articles are going popular on Medium, a lot of editors from big platforms will come and syndicate it. So that's, Mm. that's, I think, still a potential benefit of the platform. But if you're someone who wants to build a, an email list and if you're someone who wants to turn your your writing into money, unless you're just, you know, unless you want to get like, a, you know, a small five figure income, Medium won't help you too much with building an email list. Got it. And and do you still feel there's a place for writing today? Because I, I remember when I first started, there were a lot of platforms like that to write on to be able to grow an audience from. And it seems like just it's getting harder and harder to do that. And with a lot of people now focusing on 
YouTube and podcasting, it seems like blogging and, and just writing the way it used to be is, a lot of people say it's dying, but then, you know, I see people like yourself and so many others who are just, uh, you know, incredibly, uh, incredible with it. Uh, Paul Jarvis, another person who's mostly just writing versus a lot of these other platforms and, and, you're, and you're crushing it. How, how would you consider the place of writing today? And, and is it still important? And if it is, what tips do you have for those who, who would rather write and not podcast or, or do YouTube, but want to make an impact and, and grow an audience? Yeah, I do think that writing does have a place. I think it'll always have a place. I think that there's still blogs, et cetera, that can go viral. I think that, you know, I don't know the rules, for example, for, I mean, I know I, I've watched plenty of YouTube videos I, I, and I can see some of the patterns. I haven't studied it from the perspective of a student as mm -hmm. far as like how to, how to create a viral video. I'm more study blogging from that perspective. The rules are probably similar but different as far as how to like create a blog or a podcast, but there are different rules. And so I, I would say if there's the thing that really helped me was I did have a very tangible goal. I was very committed to becoming a professional writer, which, you know, when I first started, I learned that I needed to get a hundred thousand emails to get a six figure book deal. And so I, I wrote from that perspective. I took an online course from a guy named John Morrow and, uh, that course taught me how to write viral headlines and how to pitch myself. And so I was not just kind of writing for the sake of writing, although I love it, but I was very much like, I, I'm going to learn how to write viral stuff. I'm going to learn how to position my, my work so that it spreads so that I can get these hundred thousand emails or more so that I can become a professional writer. I was very much like, you know, from a deliberate practice, deliberate practice is something that, uh, is like, it's kind of the psychology of high performance. It's something that Malcolm Gladwell, you know, popularized as the 10,000 mm -hmm. hour rule. But basically what it means is it's not really 10,000 hours. It's just, it's, it's, it's learning for a purpose, you know, and, and basically what they say is you can't engage in deliberate practice without a very specific future self in mind. And so for me, that was, and so the only reason I bring all that up is I think that blogging, there's huge room for it. And there's, there's, I'm sure there's a blog post literally going off on the internet right now that's getting millions of views, maybe even tens of millions. And so there's space for it. I would just always start with the future self in mind. And it's like, you know, why are you doing this? If it's just to write and you hope to get eyeballs, you probably won't. But it's like if you're really committed to some specific end, whether it's making money, building an audience, eventually becoming an author, then you're going to have to really learn the other sides of it, which is like how to get emails and like how to get your stuff viewed by millions. And like those are skills to be learned. They're totally learnable skills. And so there's I would say, yes, I would say anyone listening to this could be someone that could manufacture an article that could get millions of views. And so I think that it's it's worth trying if that's what you want. And, and if you're just writing for the sake of writing, you could do that too. But the chances of eyeballs, I think, as you said, are, are becoming more and more difficult. You had mentioned something that was very important, no matter if you're a blogger or a podcaster or a YouTuber, and you had mentioned the importance of writing headlines. And I think that this oh, is this yeah. is like one of those things, I, I call it like the, the, the first moment of distraction. It's like, you could write the best article in the world if the headline's not great, well, you've missed the opportunity. Can you, through John's work as well, from who you learned from, John, I, I know Johnny's awesome. What's one or two things that we could all do to just write better headlines? Because I, I think it's so absolutely important no matter, no matter what we're doing. It is honestly a keystone skill. Like if you want to make money on the internet, this is like a skill that must be learned and something that you have to come around to. I will say just really quickly that one of the, one of the things that I did for so long on Medium was that I would, I probably wrote 100 articles, but there came a point where I was literally just recycling them, where like every six months I would republish the articles. I'd go through the whole list over and over and over again. Like I, and, and I did learn the importance of headlines even there, because like there would be an article and maybe the first time around it'd get maybe 20,000 views and I'd tweak the headline and it would go from 20 to 200,000. 
And so literally the headline made the big difference. But as far as thoughtful strategies, people still love list articles. List articles just do well, you know, and, and they're a great way to organize an article. So, you know, my first major popular article was eight things every person should do before 8 a.m. I mean, obviously a t- popular topic, but eight before eight, you know, two eights. It's just like your your mind can capture it. Always using the, like, rather than saying, for example, the, you know, like a strategy to maybe make passive income, you would, you would want to talk specifically. So rather than saying like, you know, a strategy to make passive income, you'd say this strategy will help you make, you know, you want to use the word this or these or here. Like you want to use words that you're talking, so it's specific. So it's mm-hmm. like this morning routine will help you make $50 million, you know, or like it's not a morning routine, it's this one, or it's like this checklist. So using stuff like that and um, people, people like numbers, you know, so if you if you put a, a certain amount of numbers, like how to make, it's not like how to make six figures, but how to make $100,343 a month, like numbers catch people's eyes and just making it hyper-focused. And so, I mean, those are some of the things that really have helped me. And I, one of the things that I learned from Ryan Holiday early on is uh, that your headline, you really want, I think that your confidence needs to come through on the headline. And so like Ryan, I think somewhere said, you know, you essentially want to dare people to click. And obviously if you're someone who loves what you're doing as far as the content and you love your audience, you're not going to just try to throw out, you know, garbage, garbage media with good headlines. I mean, you want to blow people's mind once they get in, but at the same time, you do need to be bold with, with the headline so that, or because, because of the nature of just the millions of headlines that people are exposed to, you know, you need to, you need to capture that attention and then bring them in. And then as far as once they get in there, how do you keep people in there? Cause I think, you know, uh, uh, you know, the headlines lead leads to the first paragraph, right. Or the first sentence. Yep. Then, yep. Then, yep. Yep. And then from there, I mean, it's a whole train of, 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 of just a, this journey it just seems kind of impossible for people who are just doing this for the first time. Like there's so many things I need to get right before we get into what's in the article itself, whether medium or or elsewhere. You can get better though, man. You can get better. I mean, one of my favorite quotes is a painting is never finished. It simply ends in interesting places. You know, so for example, one of the reasons I didn't write for so long is because, you know, I was worried about it being right. And I think, you know, right. if you do, if it's like the pottery example, you know, if you make 50 pots, you're going to eventually make a few good ones and you never know which ones are going to be good. And so I think it's okay. You know, deliberate practice is called practice, you know? So I think it's okay if, if you wrote 50 blog posts, some of them would be good, but you're right. So basically when someone opens the blog post, usually what I, you know, either they read the first paragraph or they scan it for the structure. This is why structures matter so much. If it's like a, a list article before they even read it, they're probably going to just scan through and read the bullets. You know, it's like, you know, what are the five ways to make income? You know, they're going to read the subheads before they even discern if they're going to take the time. And so how you structure the article is actually the second most important part. The headline's the most important part. The second thing is structuring it in a way so it feels easy, you know, so giving away the beautiful answers at the front and then, then they'll decide if they want to read it or not. And so I think having, you know, subheadings are essentially headlines in and of themselves. You know, they've got to be interesting topics, obviously useful topics, strategic topics in the case of, you know, self-help literature, what, you know, whether that's mindset stuff or whether that's income stuff, but, you know, organizing it around, you know, subsections, whether that's three, five, 10, you know, and there's obviously different strategies for different lengths of articles, but you know, the, people want to look at the article first to even see if it's worth investing. And if you can make it interesting and compelling and if it looks good, you know, and so like making it look good in a lot of ways is 
how you write the sentences, not having too blocky of paragraphs, you know, short sentences, short paragraphs, lots of white space is really, you know, that's one of the reasons why medium is so aesthetic mm-hmm. is because it doesn't feel overwhelming when you're reading, you know, and so just taking people so that it's an easy flow down to the bottom. How do you get into flow in writing? This is often another struggle that I myself have and a lot of uh, people listening right now have when you sit down to write and just nothing's coming out. What are some strategies that you've learned over the years to get your head in a good place to begin writing great stuff? Lots of journaling. Journaling is a really great place just to practice as far as just dumping thoughts and not necessarily worrying about what's being said. Also, I also write generally in the morning. You know, it's a lot easier for me to write in the morning before the busyness of the day. If I've had like a meeting, for example, or if it's hard for me to write in between things, you know, so like if I'm on your podcast, for example, I'm probably not going to write afterward because I'm I'm already kind of tired. Um, so I, I try to write before the busyness of the day. And I find if you have a structure that it's a lot easier to write around. And so for me, most of the work is about getting the structure right. And the structure, it doesn't have to be that difficult. It's just about like, what are the four ideas or the five ideas that I'm trying to talk about here that connect together? So I think if you can think in terms of what's a what's a really exciting idea or just something that you would like to talk about, and what are like the one or three subsection ideas below that? If you can get that, and then you can start to, you know, just in a kind of sloppy bulleted form, just like, what are the chapters? But it's just like, what are like the three or four things that you're trying to say, you know? And then if you can maybe find a quote or a story and you just, then all of a sudden you can just dump, you know? So you got to have kind of the structure first. If you're just facing an empty canvas, that yeah, that's a great way to hit hit writer's block, you know? But if you give yourself the time to think, all right, what am I trying to say here? I usually think that with headlines, especially... Good headlines are usually very explanatory. So like when I when someone asks, how do you write a good headline? I'm like, well, what is the purpose of the article? You know, if the purpose of the article is to teach someone how to do X, then the headline needs to say, you know, three ways to do X, you know, and if you then have that, then it's like, well, what are the three ways to do that? Um, And so if you then have the structure, then it becomes easier to just dump it out. So, I mean, once that's there, I think it's easy to get into flow, but it's hard to be in flow if you don't have that structure. One thing that helps me with flow also is just kind of having some time to think about what I'm going to write before I'm supposed to write it. Definitely, definitely. You know, in terms of like having a content calendar and stuff. Can you tell us a little bit about like your writing process in terms of planning? And what we don't want, what I'm sure you don't do, is you kind of hit publish on an article and you're like, okay, now i got to write another one. What's that going to be about? I would imagine you you have some sort of plan. Can you kind of uncover what that planning process is like? Yeah. I mean, I'm always listening to books reading, learning, Mm -hmm. and just taking notes. Uh, I do have a whiteboard filled with ideas as far as possible, you know, possible ideas. And I, I, you know, this is for me, but like when I'm journaling in the morning, I usually sketch out multiple different potential ideas, just things, you know, if I'm listening to an audiobook or podcast, just things that are interesting to me or things that I'm thinking about, just writing about things that kind of you have energy behind. Good, good writing is is energetic. Like when you're reading it, if it, if it sucks you in because you're, you get, you get caught into the emotion of it. And so, you know, when you're starting to feel emotions towards something, um, like when I'm starting to feel emotions towards something, whether it's anger or excitement or frustration, usually I'm like, okay, this is something I probably should write about. And so I start to just try to conceptualize it into a concept, you know, like for example, this morning I was, I was listening to just like, honestly, like a spiritual talk, but it was talking about how, you know, this is just an example, but like, It was talking, you know, this is a little bit more spiritual, but it was talking about how like often kids like leave their church 
or kids, you know, kids are going to church, but going through the motions. And so they end up like stopping, stop believing in religion, like when they grow up. And I was thinking, it made me think about the whole concept of deliberate practice, you know, and just about like, if you're not actually, if you don't have a purpose or a goal behind something, then you're, you are essentially going through the motions. And so then it just made me think like, if you're not, if you don't have a goal, then you're going through the motions, you know, and that, so I'm then just like literally turning this into an idea. Um, but I'm also kind of like getting upset about it or not, not, not necessarily angry upset, but just like, I have, I have an opinion on it. And, and because I have an opinion on it, I have something to say about it. Uh, and so I think it's just like, what are the things that you have an opinion on that you want to say that you have a perspective on? And then it's just framing, you know, so this is, these are ways that I get into flow, but these are also ways that I just start sketching ideas out. And I, I think doing it in the journal is nice because kind of, as you said, preparing before you write, because then you can start to think about different angles or different ways you want to talk about it. I love that. What kind of journal do you write in? Flat, just paper, just, you paper. Know, just lined paper. Nothing yeah, I've never, I've never kind of ascribed to like the, the overly structured journals. I've always just gone through just paper and just lines. Do you have like a, are, are you one of those who has like a fancy pen that you have to use the same pen all the time kind of thing? No, I use <laughs> just the cheap pens, but I am a little picky about pens, but I don't, I'm not, I don't have any fancy pens. I'm like, my journals are like literally like pen and pad, like very basic. I go through a ton of them, but uh, nothing, nothing fancy. That's cool. I love it. I was I was uh, on your about page and I see you have this beautiful family, uh, five kids, is it? Yep. Five, five kids. kids. I think one on the way to my friend. It's a little crazy. Wow. You're incredible. Uh, and your wife is incredible. That's awesome. How do you write and get your work done with such a large family and all these kids in the house? I don't write at my house. <laughs> I did for a long time. Uh, I have a, I have a separate office. The early blogs and stuff, I would, I would leave, you know, I'd wake up super early. I went to Clemson university for my PhD. And so I would, I would usually like wake up super early and go write like in some computer lab, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I would actually honestly prefer writing in my car with a hotspot, even if like, you know, like I, I, I prefer to wake up early before the craziness, if I'm going to be home, even if it's just like an hour early, you know, and I, I think fast timelines are good. Like I call timelines forcing functions because they force you to focus, you know, it's Parkinson's law, I think. But I, I think that getting out of your environment is key. And obviously, if you don't have a car, that's a big challenge. But for me, I would rather, if I didn't have this office, which I do have now, I would rather go out to my car with my laptop, with a hotspot and write in there than try to write in my house. Because there's just too many other triggers in the house. There's too many other distractions. And and, and some people may have a, an office space for that. And so if that's the case, then that environment's suited for their work. But I didn't actually have that for many, many years. I never had an actual place that I could write. And so I had to just kind of find places. And that, that, that is a constraint, but you can get around it. You know, I think that if you're, you know, for me, at least in the journal, organizing thoughts, studying it, if you've got a reason to write, you can get into some momentum where you get used to just throwing out imperfect work. And, you know, if you only have an hour, use that hour to push out something that's not perfect versus not having done that. That's how you build confidence. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Th- thank you for some insights on your writing and your habits and, and whatnot. I think that's extremely valuable. I'd love to shift the conversation to personality. Yeah, isn't permanent. This is your new book that by the time this episode comes out, it will have just come out about yesterday, actually, at the time of of this recording going live. So uh, congratulations on the new book published by Penguin. Um, Tell us about the book. Who's it for? Personality isn't permanent. This book is for people who, you know, want to understand more about why they are the way they are. And, you know, basically, I kind of destroy common perspectives of what personality is. Pop culture views of personality are very different from the research over the last 50 years. This book kind of shreds 
tests like Myers and Briggs and just kind of explains why those lead to a fixed mindset. And really, this is a book about people who want to live, want to want to become who they want to be. You know, it's there's a lot of really cool research on future self and about how to become that. And so I just wanted to provide a, a more useful perspective of personality since it's such a broad, popular topic mm-hmm. and just kind of show from a science perspective, but also I think more from a common sense perspective, why some of the more traditional views can be limiting. Well, I'm a big fan of actually, and, and I've, I've used quite a bit, uh, the Enneagram, which I know you also mentioned there too, which is another one of those sort of pop culture sort of uh, tests that one could take to understand more about themselves. And I think you're right, it does definitely, like I'm a three in Enneagram and that's like what I associate with, but I've never questioned, well, could I be another number or could I be something else? How do you, using science, sort of allow us and give us the freedom to potentially, uh, you know, get rid of these self-limiting beliefs perhaps or or getting out of who we think we are uh, based on a lot of these popularized tests? Well, I guess I'll just ask you, do you think that you're the exact same person you were five years ago? No. I think I'm a, I, I think I had parts of who I am now in there and I've just sort of leaned into more of who I think I know I am. So you think you're pretty similar, pretty much the same guy? Pretty similar, but definitely, I don't know if you want to call it more mature, grown up or more confident, but if you were to ask me about who I was 10 years ago before I got laid off and before I sort of had this opportunity to create all my business, it, yeah, you're actually right. I would have been somebody who I would have thought was completely different, not sort of uh, confident, not seeking recognition and, and feeling worthiness from uh, serving others. That, that's not who I was before, or at least I don't think I was. Yeah, I mean, if I, if, for example, if I didn't know who Pat Flynn was, and if I met the version of you 10 years ago, had a conversation with you, you know, and let's just say you guys didn't look the same. <laughs> okay. And then I met you and had a conversation with current Pat Flynn, like, would I think that they're the exact same person? Probably not, maybe not. Probably, probably not, no. Similar. I mean, I've had, I've also, like, this makes me think of friends who used to be friends who aren't friends because something in their life has changed them. They weren't who they were before or why I was attracted to them. It's interesting. It, it, so there's there's a lot of really cool research from a guy named Daniel Gilbert. Um, Daniel Gilbert, he actually gave a TED Talk called The Psychology of Your Future Self. He's been studying personality development over time. And basically what he does is he asks people to, you know, basically see if they're the exact same person, same preferences, same, per, you know, same interests, same, same situation, same habits, same views as who they were 10 years ago. Say, no, not really. Are you going to be the same person in 10 years as you are today? And even for people who have undergone big change, you know, the, the general consensus is, is that the change in the future is going to be less than the change has been in the past. That's actually a psychological phenomenon called the end of history illusion. And basically how Dr. Gilbert explains it is that human beings are works in progress that mistakenly think they're finished. Um, we have a tendency as people to think that the current version of ourselves is pretty pretty much the version of us that we're always going to be. We, we undervalue change that's going to happen in the future. And basically, the truth is, is that your future self will be different than your current self. If you're, if you're not trying to change, it's going to be less different. But if you're seeking growth, seeking change, seeking new experiences, being intentional, your future self will as you've said, be more mature. They'll they'll have probably better priorities, better perspectives. They'll make different decisions. Um, They'll weigh things differently. They'll also be in a different context. And so I think one beautiful aspect of this is to know that if you're overly owning your current identity and if you're cementing it in, like by, for example, saying I'm a three, that what that does is it creates tunnel vision um, that ultimately, usually when people overly assume a label, which 
which from a psychological perspective makes you mindless. So there's a lot of research from Ellen Langer, who's at Harvard, and she studied mindfulness for about 40 years. Uh, her book, Mindfulness, and her book, Counterclockwise, I could not recommend them more. But basically what labeling does is it leads you to being mindless. Um, it leads you to not noticing all the times when the label isn't true. So like, if my guess is if I were to follow you around for a day, I'd probably see a lot of that three from the Enneagram perspective, but I'd also see a lot of other things. But you might not see those other things because of your identification as a three. When you buy a car, you start to see the car everywhere. So in psychology, we call that selective attention. But you don't see the 500 other cars because you're not paying mm. attention to those. And so these tests make you think you're one way when really you're... <laughs> You're actually not as consistent to the label as you think you are, but but because you think the label is true, and maybe because you identify with it so well, maybe you love the label. Um, you then set goals to confirm the label, which which stops you from maybe being flexible or imaginative about what you could be. So they, they ultimately overly labeling yourself creates a fixed mindset about your identity, stops you from potentially seeing yourself in different ways or pursuing things that may may be different than what you currently are right now. You know, and, and your identity is really just a view. You know, we don't see the world as it is. We see it as we are. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that also, in addition to that, I, I look for ways to prove I am a three, right? And I, like, it's, yeah, com- I mean, that's, you know, yeah. confirmation bias is, take, takes, a, takes a role here, I would assume. That's a big part of labeling. Yeah, I mean, if you've overly assumed a label, then that's what you're going to do. You're going to confirm the bias and you're going to set goals to confirm the bias. And so your, per- so your goals become a product of your current view of your personality, rather than your personality being the product of the goals you genuinely want to pursue. You know, and so you end up, your life becomes to confirm the, person, the persona that you've, that you've really bought into. And from like an identity perspective, there's actually, and I don't know, I don't know if you know who Paul Graham is, but he, he gave a, a great lecture, the whole idea of keep your identity small, but it's really about if you, labels kind of make you dumb in the sense that they, they, they make you defensive about how you view yourself. Um, but from an identity perspective as well, if your future self is going to be different and hopefully they're going to be better. I mean, you know, basically the idea is, is two things. One is your future self can be intentionally designed. And in fact, if you don't, then you can't make adequate decisions here and now. So like if you don't know who you're going to be or who you want to be, then it doesn't really matter what you do today because none of the decisions you make here and now matter. So Hal Hirschfeld, he's at um, UCLA. He studied basically the, the relationship between having a, a, an imagined future self and how that, you know, influences your decision making here and now. And, you know, viewing your future self as a different version of you, a different person, not you, but they're a different person who would do things differently and making decisions based on that allows you to make better decisions here and now, but also kind of in the realm of high performance or just learning you can't actually engage in what's called deliberate practice without having a future self in mind. Like you, you know, deliberate practice is essentially meaningful learning. It's, it's not the same as going to the gym every day and doing the same workout. You know, it's not, and actually a lot of people on Medium, I saw this over and over and over. There's a lot of people who are, quote, obsessed with the process. Like they're so obsessed with just doing the thing. And I actually think that that's a persona as well. And I think it's based on ego. But they'll, I, there's so many writers who are still writing on Medium. And they've written thousands of blog posts. But their blog posts aren't getting any better. And, and they haven't translated anything. And, I, and it's not because they don't have the skill. I think it's because you know, it's that 10,000 hour rule thing. It's not 10,000 hours. Like that's not what makes you good. It's, it's going through a specific type of training for the specific purpose of becoming something. And so if you have a specific goal and you're going through specific types of training, then writing a blog post could lead to growth because then you look at the blog post from the perspective of your future self and you're like, this isn't going to get me there. Like I need to get better. I need coaching or I need to like learn how to do these headlines better. You know, like then the process can become practice, which leads to growth. Wow. I love that. 
what else could we expect in the book? Um, how, how, like, what's the ultimate outcome that you'd prefer for us after reading through? I think intentionality. Like, you know, what they say is, is that the number one deathbed regret is that, you know, that people didn't do who they, they didn't become who they genuinely wanted to be. They lacked the courage to be who they really wanted to be. And instead they lived up to the expectations that they thought other people had of them. I mean, even people who are very successful develop a develop a status and a persona like you know you yourself like you have a persona online that we all know you as and uh it can be very easy to get trapped into a status or a persona and that and that can then be the thing that drives your decision making versus what you truly want which may require a pivot and so i think that being honest about who you really want to be and what you really want to do and then ultimately turning that into your identity narrative it you know it's easy to go into autopilot but really the, the book is ultimately about why personality is something, and there's such good research on this now, but why personality is something that can and should be shaped. That's not to say it's easy. Uh, it's always a, a learning process. I mean, you're going to have to get rid of, for example, views of your past. You have to update your, your view of how you see the world from the past perspective, you know, your relationship with your former self, how you view the past can and should change from a memory perspective and how you explain the past, but also really being open and honest with yourself and other people about who you want to be in the future. And then obviously reshaping how you explain yourself, your identity narrative, you know, changing your environment, updating your subconscious, like all of these things are ways that you can become who you want to be. And I think that living intentionally obviously requires a lot of courage, but it's, I think that's probably got to where you're at. I mean, you've done a lot of things intentionally and, and um, that there's ways to do that. And if you're living intentionally by, by definition, you're not living subconsciously. And you're not living reactively or on autopilot, but you're actually on a daily basis thinking, who do I want to become? How do I move in that direction? Sometimes it takes courage, but that's kind of a more true way of living. And it's also a more honest way of living. And, and, and it is how you can make big change where when you're looking at yourself maybe a year or two years ago, you realize, wow, I am quite different. Yeah, I think everybody's thinking about that right now, actually. And, and the final question I have for you, and again, thank you for spending time with us here today. I uh, definitely recommend everybody check out the book, Personality Isn't Permanent. Really quick, where might people go to, to, to check that out or where would you like them to go? Anywhere. You know, they can get it anywhere, wherever they prefer to buy books. Um, really grateful just to be on your show. <laughs> like I did not expect this. Really humbled and grateful for Richie Norton to just like, you know, let me give this opportunity. I'm very humbled and uh, hopefully people got value out of the medium conversation. But yeah, you can get the book anywhere. My website's benjaminhari.com and uh, obviously we give away free giveaways for people who pre-order or buy the book. But uh, yeah, just wherever you buy, wherever you prefer to buy the book. Cool. Thank you for that. Uh, the final question is, uh, it goes actually back to your kids and this idea of psychology and, and, and identity and kids, you know, they're, they're young, they're growing up, they don't even know who they are yet. They're, they're discovering themselves, they're being shaped. How do you take this information that we're learning here in this book and through this conversation today about self and who we are and, who, you know, intentionality? Um, how, are, how are you sort of instilling that into your kids and helping them sort of prepare for the future and becoming the best version of themselves? Yeah, three thoughts come to my mind. One is um, myself. For example, it's really easy to view yourself from a tunnel vision perspective where you stop being mindless about yourself and you become rigid and essentially try to confirm your own identity. It's also very easy to do that with kids. You know, I adopted, we adopted our older three kids and so our oldest one is 12. And let's just say he's got some tendencies or he's had tendencies to kind of try to get himself out of situations. You know, like when we're trying to get him to do homework, like he'll do anything and everything to get out of that. Mm. And so like I, I can easily be in tunnel vision mode where I think that that's always the case. Like so if I and by the way, again, it's like seeing the car that you always see. There's certain things that you attend to or focus on and you ignore the times when that's not true. We, we all have triggers or things that we focus on about 
our kids or about other people just as we do for ourselves. And it's easy to be mindless or to lack attention towards things that just we don't see as that relevant or that don't trigger us. And so just as an example, like recently, you know, I got mad at my son or something like that because he was just trying to dodge the situation, you know, and I'm like, why are you always like trying to like get out of stuff? And I was really grateful because my wife like stopped me, you know, and, and it's I think it's good to have an environment where you're where you sometimes you can get pulled out of your mindlessness. Yeah. And my wife's really, really good at that. And 100 percent. She's the soldier. She's the one who stabilizes everything. And we wouldn't be able to do anything without her. But, you know, she she just was like, Ben, stop it. Like you're uh, you're being ridiculous. Like you're you're putting him into a box like he's not always trying to get out of things. And then she would remind me, like, look at what he did this morning. Like he was being very amazing at like doing his homework and he rocked it all this morning. And I was like, you know what? You're hundred percent right. Like, and I apologize to my son. It's like, you know, so I think, it, I think one thing is just realizing that it's easy to be mindless towards other people. It's easy to miss their growth. It's easy to see them from one perspective. And, and I think it's good to sometimes, you know, just as you question the perspective you have of yourself or not, or don't hold it so tight that you can't change. Same is true of your kids that like, they're great. I I, I just, I really, it it just humbles me actually to watch how much our kids have actually changed because we got them as foster kids five years ago and we went through a crazy court battle for three years to get them. And, um, you know, I like the concept of Dan Sullivan who says measure the gain, not the gap, but like it's, it's actually insane. And I think it's a good practice to spend some time to look at what's changed in your life or in your kid's life or how they've changed over the last year, two years, three years. Dan Sullivan actually recommends doing it every nine months. You can really train yourself to notice change, be mindful of growth and development. But like, you know, if I think about who my kids are now versus the kids that they were when we got them five years ago, it's shocking. I mean, the types of behavioral issues we were dealing with when we first got them. I mean, so I think when you notice change and when you're paying attention to that, I mean, it's kind of that whole idea, what you focus on expands. You know, when you're noticing change and you're looking for that, you can you can get out of tunnel vision mode. So, I mean, I think that that's one. Um, I think I went long enough there that I won't <laughs> won't go into the other ones. <laughs> no, that was that was fantastic. Thank you for that insight. And you know, I think you're right. Just being conscious is is sort of the key here because we often, especially being busy and being online, we're we do get a little mindless sometimes. So, thank you for bringing us some some consciousness and. Uh, and some willpower too. So, uh, so appreciate you for that. And again, benjaminhardy.com and check out the book when, whenever you can. Personality isn't permanent. Thank you for taking the time today, Ben. Appreciate you. Yeah, no, I'm grateful to be on here. All right, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Ben Hardy. You can check him out at benjaminhardy.com. Make sure it's benjaminhardy.com, not benhardy.com. That'll take you to a very interesting website, but go to both because, I mean, yeah, it's worth going to. Uh, But secondly, make sure to check out the book, Personality Isn't Permanent. A very interesting discussion about that because I've gotten really into, like you heard in the episode, uh, the Enneagram, and this sort of counters the idea that you just are a certain way but I love the way he challenged me there. It was great and, and definitely a, a well worthwhile to, um, to at least explore this a little bit more. So thank you, Ben. I appreciate you for coming on. Thank you for listening all the way through. And I'm excited to share more with you coming up in the upcoming weeks here. Next week, we got another great episode coming your way. So make sure you hit that subscribe button so you make sure you don't miss that. And uh, if you wanna check out the links and all the things mentioned here in this episode, head on over to the show notes page at smartpassiveincome.com slash session 431. Once again, smartpassiveincome.com slash session 431. Cheers, thanks so much. I appreciate you. And as always, Team Flynn for the win. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at www.smartpassiveincome.com. 
So podcasting is obviously a big deal here at SPI. And today, I'm so excited to tell you about our newest podcast. Yes, a brand new podcast called Flops. Flops is all about exploring, celebrating, and normalizing failure in the entrepreneurial journey. Every entrepreneur experiences failure at some point. So I love that we're just facing it head on here. And the show is hosted by two members of the team, Karen and Ray. And in it, they talk to entrepreneurs who have had stumbles, setbacks, and flat-out failures. These guests are honest and generous with their stories, and I think they offer hope and encouragement for all other entrepreneurs out there because we all experience it, right? We all experience failure. For example, in the first episode, Ray talks to John who got caught up in a Ponzi scheme. It's a story with twists and turns that will keep you hooked. It's a great story. I highly recommend you check it out. But one thing I love about Flops is that it doesn't dwell on the failure and it always finds a bright side. I really love it and I think you will too. So the first season of Flops has already started with new episodes dropping on Wednesdays. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen at smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. I hope you enjoy it.